Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's September 22nd, so summer is officially over. We're into fall, and for you Game of Thrones fans, winter is coming. Um, so we wake up, we have a high-stakes game of political chicken over the debt ceiling that could tank the economy and kill millions of jobs. We have a border crisis complete with dystopian images of guys on horseback wielding lariats or something on fleeing Haitian immigrants. That's great. Uh, and in case you've missed it, uh, the pandemic is killing 2,000 Americans a day, which is the equivalent of 9-11 every day and a half or so. And in uh, in Congress, progressive Democrats are threatening to torpedo Joe Biden's biggest political win so far, a bipartisan infrastructure bill. Um, and Republicans in the Senate are apparently willing to let, you know, vote against the, the debt ceiling. And sane Republicans continue to flee their party. So, hey, hey happy Wednesday, everybody. Now, I, I, when I was debating whether I should start off this morning with Tucker Carlson or with Adam Kinzinger. And honestly, it is way too early for Tucker's latest insane conspiracy theory. And there's not enough caffeine in the world to get me there at the beginning. So let's start with Adam. Good morning, Congressman. <laughs> Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Good morning. How are you? Yeah, well, um, you know, I'd like to say we're living the dream, but but boy, what an incredible week we're at right here. So I, let, let's let's start off with something that you did, okay? Would you mind if I played you to yourself? No, please, please play okay. me to me. Okay, because we're, we've both uh, written and talked about this whole question of, you know, should we stay or should we go? Uh, last week, uh, Anthony Gonzalez, who's one of the 10, like you, um, Republican members of Congress who voted to impeach uh, Donald Trump uh, announced that he was not seeking re-election, which, of course, is disappointing because, you know, if, 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 if all the sane, rational, decent members leave, then that simply makes the party more toxic than it was mm -hmm. before. But, but you, you made a, a you, you taped a video plea to your colleagues uh, in the wake of Anthony Gonzalez's announcement. Let's play that. A couple of days ago, my friend Anthony Gonzalez announced he won't run again. And now the pundits and politicos are discussing whether this means that Trump won. So let me answer this question. Yes, as of now, Trump is winning. Not because Anthony decided not to run, but because so many in the Republican Party decided to stay silent. Ten of us voted to impeach the former guy, fulfilling our constitutional duty. Yet so many GOP colleagues watch from the sidelines, lacking courage to speak out while privately hoping for change. The future of the party and politics in this country doesn't rest on the 10 of us. It rests on the courage of the 180 others who have been silent so far. To my GOP colleagues, the time is now to speak up. I know some of you desperately want to win a Senate primary. I know some of you need the title, and I know some fear your own base, which in and of itself is an incredible <laughs> and sad thought. But fear will paralyze and fill you with regret for life. What is it for a man to gain the world but to lose his soul? If you think Trump leads our party, you own his comments or you must denounce them. If you think he doesn't lead our party, you must publicly say that. The time for hiding is over. The stakes are too high. This authoritarian and truth-starved party will not get better unless you stand up. Will you allow the former president 
to continue his absolute lies. Ten of us voted to impeach Trump. 180 remained silent, and now it's their turn. When we all publicly take sides, then we can answer the question once and for all, whose party is this? Hmm. I agree with every word of that, Congressman. Mm. But we kind of have the answer already, don't we? I mean, you, um, you, you said that silence is not an option, but of course it's an option. It's an option that the vast majority of your colleagues have taken and will continue to take. They're not going to speak up, are they? Uh, you know, I'm afraid not. And I think that's why it's so important for this to get out there. Because, you know, for me, the inception of that video was when, you know, I saw that Anthony wasn't running again. And, you know, you see all the all the punditry in the news saying, well, you know, basically Anthony owed this to run again. And I, and it started to hit me. It's like, no, you know, Anthony took a very strong, you know, statement in voting to impeach. Anthony was very clear about what he believes, but the, the future of the party doesn't rest on 10 of us that voted to impeach Trump. And then what we decide and whether or not we win, it rests on those that are not saying a word hmm. and they know better. I mean, you know, these people that, you know, prior to January 6th or even maybe a little after January 6th were hardcore, you know, champions for freedom. And then all of a sudden saw that the Trumpism wasn't going anywhere. And now there's pictures of them with, you know, uh, Trump riding a unicorn flags or they're running for Senate and trying to go out and pretend like they were on board the whole time. It's like, that's fine. That's your choice. But don't say that it is on the 10 of us to save the party because it is on you that the party is failing. That's the problem. It, it seems as if Republicans have completely internalized the, the, the warning and the message that if they, if they speak out, that that would be committing political suicide, right? That the Twitter trolls yeah. would be released on them, the flying monkeys would be, would, would, would be loosed. And that the flip side of that is that if they just keep their heads down – uh, because it's a midterm election and things are at the moment not going well for the Democrats. If they keep their heads down, they'll win the majority despite all the craziness, the lies, um, and the sedition. Yeah, that's it. And it's the seduction of like what you can convince yourself. You can seduce yourself into believing just one more election cycle, right? And I'll get past this kind of having to fight Trumpism, and then I can really be myself. I have been through, so this is me speaking now, mm. I have been through a primary every year I've been in Congress, mm. with the exception of one, and every one of those primaries, I was challenged by somebody that said I wasn't sufficiently conservative, or of recent, I wasn't sufficiently pro-Trump. I kicked their asses every time, but yet there's always then another election in which, you know, you're being challenged on that level. So these people that think that we can be quiet, then we'll take the majority, and then we can have a grown-up, you know, mature agenda for the American people. Holy crap. You think you think when we take the majority that we're gonna grow up? Imagine what happens now when all these people are are when we have control of the house, and then now all of a sudden we're putting forward stop the steal bills. You think that's not gonna happen? Of course that's gonna happen. And then especially you can't speak up because the base is going to be convinced that but for your no vote on this silly bill, we could have changed the world for good and Donald Trump could be president for life. That's what we're facing. The, let me bounce this off you because I've already made the prediction that if Republicans take the House, they just won't be able to stop themselves from impeaching Joe Biden just no. because. 
So right. we e- expect that, right? I think 100%. So, w- yeah. you know, when we had the majority, uh, you know, prior to this, we were always kind of fighting the crazy let's impeach, uh, you know, Obama mm-hmm. for no reason caucus. Oh, now they've got a reason. They Yeah, of course we were going to fight every time. Probably have to vote. We'll probably vote on Joe Biden's impeachment every week. So speaking of more positive developments or interesting developments, I mean, you're still there. Liz Cheney is still there. You have not backed off. Liz Cheney has not backed off. And I'm reading in the Wall Street Journal this morning that former President Bush and other um, very prominent Republicans have decided that they're going to campaign for Liz Cheney. That includes uh, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, former uh, senator from Texas, and even Carl Rove. So give me your mm-hmm. take on that. That that seems like a kind of an interesting development that some people are yeah. coming out of the weeds and, you know, going going head to head with uh, with the with the orange guy. Yeah, it is. And it's good. You know, I uh, I had Carl do a fundraiser for me earlier in the year. And then, you know, so did Paul Ryan. And of course, that so that lights off the Twitter sphere mm-hmm. on both mm-hmm. sides, honestly. And uh um, but what I think the good thing about it <clears throat> is, you know, for a long time, so I'm a, I'm a fan of George W. Obviously, he made some mistakes, but I think he's a great guy. And, uh, you know, and he's done the honorable thing, which is just to kind of be silent, right, as a former president. But he's now competing against people that don't do that. And I think his speech on uh, at the uh, 9-11 memorial was incredible. And I think we need more of that. And I think he's recognizing that it is important for him. He doesn't have to take on Donald Trump directly, but it's important for him to support, you know, good people. And when it Mm -hmm. comes to people like Liz Cheney, yeah, some of the people can look at this and say, well, that's some of the establishment Republicans. Sure. Well, but there's also a lot of people that are not establishment Republicans supporting Liz. Let's think about, you know, the number of kind of conservative Democrats that will write a check to Liz Cheney and people can poo-poo that. But the truth is, just like what happened with Donald Trump, where he pulled people that never voted Republican before, we have the opportunity to pull people into Republicanism if we mature it and grow it up. Um, but I, I think the biggest thing is people exiting their tribe to do the right thing for the country and recognizing that somebody like Liz has done that. But it's going to be a fight. It's going to be a fight because you are up against the misinformation of Liz Cheney and the other nine that voted for impeachment. If only they had just had the courage to do the right thing and not impeach Trump, Trump would be president for life. It is interesting the way that word courage has been turned around. Right. You know, t- Trump has said, you know, well, if the judges had the courage, if Mike Pence had the courage, by which they mean if they would have, you know, bald, bald facedly ignored the Constitution, overthrown the election and ignored the law. Um, it, I mean, that, that's that, it's an interesting use of the word uh, courage. And of course, in the last couple of just even the last couple of days, what we've learned about how serious oh. Trump was. And I, you know, again, this seems like an old story in some ways. But I mean, you know, uh, you know, he, he writes a letter to the uh, secretary of state of Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, asking him to begin decertifying the election and declare him winner of the election. Uh, as far as I can tell, other than you and a handful of other Republicans, that's been greeted by absolute crickets. No yeah. response. And then we're starting to see um, details about this John Eastman uh, memo, the six-point memo. Apparently, there's a longer version, which laid out a scenario for Mike Pence and Republicans in Congress to literally overthrow the election by disenfranchising tens of millions of voters in seven states. 
And again, uh, Adam, I don't see any I reaction from Republicans whatsoever other than you and Liz Cheney, a handful of others. You know, and that's what the scary thing is, is I think we're getting to the point where it's like, you know, if you get punched in the face so many times, eventually you just don't feel it. And I think we're becoming yeah. as a maybe a party or a country, I don't like whatever, pick your pick your thing, you know, numb to insanity. If if three years ago, you know, we'd have heard about any kind of a memo like this. Yeah. Hey, basically, if if Pence just doesn't do it, you know, then we can just go right to the house and, you know, screw him. Basically, we'd be going ballistic. And everybody's like, yeah, yeah. And, and I think what's obvious is it's no longer just theory. It's no longer we got to pat Trump on the head and hope he goes away. Like, this is real. And, you know, and if strength, <laughs> I mean, if strength is a guy who makes, you know, armpit farts and then dips his you know, uh, you know, French fries and ketchup and throws them at you in the lunchroom. If that's strength, when that's who Donald Trump is, this kind of bully, you know, jerk bag, like that's, there's no church or no man growing up or anybody that ever taught me strength like that. And, you know, strength being stealing and lies. And, and this is where I, I, and and I think the one thing, Charlie, that I, I don't understand is when people like, um, Kevin McCarthy, you know, you go only does Fox News. They only do Fox News. Right. That's it. Fox News and OAN. But they still occasionally are in front of, you know, other press. And and why that those people with with uh, Kevin or any of these other congressmen don't just press them down and not let them relent on the issue of is Joe Biden legitimately elected or not? Get them on record and then go from there. Right now, and, you have and, so many right. people that put their head down. And, and 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 ask the follow up question because they they always have a dodge. Well, he is the right. president. No, um, you know, could you specifically address this particular issue? You 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 made in in, in passing a, a reference to uh, George W. Bush's speech on nine eleven, uh, where he really compared the domestic terrorists to uh, international terrorists, and it was interesting that there was uh, a, a stream of commentary, particularly on the some of the anti anti Trump folks. That said, well, how do you know that he's talking about January 6th? You know, maybe he's not. I mean, why do you assume he's talking about, you know, uh, Trumpist uh, insurrectionists? I think that his decision to come out forthrightly and campaign for Liz Cheney puts it, you know, puts an end to any of that speculation because it's hard to imagine a more tangible uh, statement that no, I'm talking about that, and I'm going to align myself with the person, with the, the with with the people who have spoken up most forcefully and eloquently about the threat to democracy on January 6th. So, I mean, you put those two together, and there shouldn't be any ambiguity whatsoever, should there? No, absolutely not. And I think, I think you know, W has made it very clear what he feels when he talks about. There's a there was a very spiritual element to his speech that I caught, which is he says. You know, those of international terrorism and domestic, you know, extremism are, are children of the same foul spirit. Now, that's not just an allegorical kind of English language, you know, flowery thing. That is, in his belief and frankly mine too, showing that there is a real kind of effort, an evil effort to use, frankly, I think domestic extremism to discredit the church, to discredit, obviously, conservatism. Hmm. The best trick, if you're the devil, is to infect the church and make them think that they're out there fighting some holy war. And in fact, all they're doing is embarrassing themselves and turning off a whole generation of people from the church. And I think that's what I think that's what W was was referring to that from that perspective of. And and 
you know, look, it's it's a it's a reality. That's that's the moment we're in. We are we are in that moment where yes, Al Qaeda and you know, Proud Boys may not share a lot culturally, but they both have the same target, which is the U.S. government and people they don't dis- they don't agree with. Well, I'm going to come back to this whole Anthony Gonzalez, you know, stay or, you know, should you stay or should you go theme in, in just a moment. But since we're on uh, January 6th, you are on this select committee on January 6th looking into it. And of course, uh, there's been a lot of coverage about the uh, the document request that you've made. So give me, you know, it will, tell me what you can How are you still optimistic that this committee will be able to get to the bottom of who did what, when, who knew what, when, how is it going? Yeah. So I I am optimistic. Um, I wish it was going, I wish this was faster. Um, but you keep in mind when we're, so we've put out requests with the national archives, you know, that archive, uh, presidential communications, et cetera. So there's a lot of information there that has a process, you know, the former president has 30 days, to react to that when they give them the list of documents, then the current administration has 30 days to declare executive privilege, and then you're kind of back and forth. So we're in that process. You're going to see subpoenas soon. I'm not going to say who, but mm-hmm. you'll start to see some of that. So the question is who fights us, who comes in voluntarily. We already have people uh, you know, voluntarily working with us. Um, and it's it's I explain it as this is going to be an iceberg, right? So, you know, you see a little bit of the iceberg above the surface. That'll be some of the hearings we have. But those will all be secondary to the iceberg under the water, which is the investigations occurring now. We've got, you know, prosecutors hired up, people that are going through these documents that know what they're doing. And our goal here is not just to hold people accountable, which is going to be extremely important, but to put the full narrative together of, you know, I think, for instance, where did the big lie originate from? It mm-hmm. didn't originate from reality. You know, January, the idea that we could throw a presidential election out on the 6th didn't originate from the Constitution. It originated from, you know, Alan's stupid face uh, on, you know, December 4th, yep. who happened to tweet this and Paul Gosar saw it, you know, something like that. It's important to have all of that, including how do we get to this point and who's responsible. And I am confident we will get there. And I think... Well, I'd love to say we're going to have it by Christmas. We won't. I think a realistic thing is probably spring. It's also interesting the the kind of information that we're getting out of the uh, Dominion lawsuits, uh, including one of the uh, former Dominion employees who apparently has uh, been able to, through the process of discovery, find out that the Trump campaign itself actually knew that a lot of the rhetoric about the rigged voting machines was completely bogus within days. <laughs> And so that even so now that we know that when when Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell came out and gave that complete batshit crazy press conference at the RNC, <laughs> that they already knew that none of this was true. They knew that the big lie was a lie and they continued to peddle it. So, I mean, we're going to get a lot out of these civil lawsuits as well. I, can I just say, too, on sure. that, the thing the Please. thing I fear is I fear that everybody knows it's B.S., this is my worry. Oh, I know. Is that if you really you hook here. anybody up on a yeah. lie detector and yeah. say was the election stolen, the lie detector answer would be no. Joe, but this is my worry is that most people truly know it, but it has become a, a, a you know entry into the tribe and b truth doesn't matter as long as you win the war. That's what I worry about. I hope I'm wrong. No, this is a really interesting point because it, it's one thing for people to believe something false. Okay, that's right. that's that is that's a real problem. 
but it's it is a different problem, and I think it's a worse problem. I agree with you completely about this. It's worse problem if people know something is false and they don't care. That's we. That's a different sort of mental universe that we're in. And at least among Republican elites, I think that's absolutely true. I actually wrote a piece about all the Wisconsin Republicans who are oh, continuing yeah. to sort of go through the motions and they all know that it's bogus, but they, they are appeasing and they're feeding the crocodile. Um, you know, Ron Johnson, you know, yeah. you know, he's willing to embrace every crackpot conspiracy theory out there, but he was caught on tape admitting that he knows it's not true. You know that, you know, people like Scott Walker know it's not true. Range Priebus knows it's not true. And yet they're continuing to push the bullshit. I don't know about the grassroots. I think that the base, um, you know, still believes that, you know, they're not being fed a lot of, you know, garbage. But I mean, th this is part of the cynicism of it, isn't it? Is that it, yeah. people who are in trusted positions in the media and in politics continue to mislead and lie to their voters because they're afraid of their voters, but also because they have such fundamental contempt for their voters. Yeah, it's true. Do you remember the old, it's so true. Remember, I don't know, five, six, seven, eight years ago, whatever, you get elected. And I would say in a speech like American democracy and some, you know, pompous, whatever would come up yeah. and be like, this is a republic, you know, and don't ever call, <laughs> you know, and yeah, that kind yeah. of thing. Well, that's true. It is a republic. And I think they have a very good point because a republic is about leaders leading. Right. The whole idea using of using their own judgment. Yeah, that's right. It is. I am going to elect somebody to use their best judgment for two years and then I'll make a decision in two years if I want to send them back or not. And what we've we have become a direct democracy where, you know, uh, Sean Hannity or Tucker has convinced everybody that they're they know more about what's going on than, you know, those out in D.C. We're just the elite class trying to defend our own, you know, good deal, quote unquote. And so if I go and say, hey, this isn't true, what they're telling you is like, well, no, Tucker said it was true. And we have become a direct democracy. And that's what you're seeing the failings of. And these people like, you know, the ones that you mentioned, instead of going and doing a service to their base and telling them the truth, they'd much rather uh, let them believe or put on a front like J.D. Vance so that they can get into power. And then all of a sudden now they can lead, but they're not going to lead because it'll never change. Yeah, it's you, you put on the clown mask, it's very hard to put take off that clown mask later that's on. Right. And that's yeah. it, you, you find that it's stuck there. So, um, you know, speaking of which, I, I, I just looked this up because, you know, one of the founders of the modern conservative movement was Edmund Burke, um, who every conservative at one time um, might have read or, or, or followed, whether they knew it or not. And he, of course... Uh, gave that that famous speech to his voters um, in, in in Bristol, where he said, "Your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment, and he betrays you instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion." That is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but no, is, it's brilliant. That is the statement of what a representative republic should be, that you elect people who then owes you. He's going to work hard for you, but he's also going to give you his best judgment. And so he's not going to simply go with every every crazy notion that pops up on Facebook. And this was something that, again, conservatives used to understand until about five minutes ago and it's gone. Yeah, and I, I explain it to people like, look, my job – because you know every every person you talk to says – if you say, do you have any questions for me? Well, the question is always, do you do what the district wants or right. do you do what you want? And I said the way I've come to settle on this is 
for the interest of the district. So things like ethanol is very important to my district. Nuclear is very important to my district. On those kinds of issues, I work my tail off for the interest of my district, regardless of what my you know kind of opinion is on kind of amoral or, or non-moral type issues. On things like was the election stolen, on things like my view of abortion, on things like you know government spending, that is me doing what I believe to be right. So the answer is both. But if I'm going to stand up and say, gosh, and by the way, even these people in very, very Republican districts that say my district want me, districts, district doesn't want me to vote, you know, to impeach Trump, for instance. The truth is they're only thinking about their base. If they actually look at their whole district, including the Democrats in that district, even though it's dominated by Republicans, we would actually see this quite differently. All right. So let's talk about this, this whole question of staying in the party or, or not. And I put, the, you know, put this into some context. Uh, in my newsletter, I quoted you know, 538, did an analysis, which I'm sure you've seen, that congressional Republicans left office in droves under Trump. And they did an analysis that, that if you look at all the Republican senators and uh, representatives who were in office on January 20th, 2017, when Trump was sworn in, um, of, of that, of, there were 293. Of those, as of April 22nd, uh, only 161 are still around. 132 have retired, resigned, announced their retirement, died. Um, you, you had some people who just left the Republican Party, like uh, Paul Mitchell and Justin Amash. So there has been this real hemorrhaging, this self-purging of people who go, you know what? I, I could run, but I really don't want to be part of this anymore. And 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 that's the that's what I wanted to talk to you about, Anthony Gonzalez, because he says, and and I think there's reason to believe because he's a he's a talented, popular guy, um, well known, well spoken, uh, Stanford MBA, former NFL, you know, college football player. Uh, he said, you know, I, I I could have won that primary, but in the end, isn't that what he said? He said, it's not worth anymore. He said, yeah. you could fight your butt off and win this thing, but are you really going to be happy? The answer is probably not. So what I wrote, and you know, was mm -hmm. his, this was, you know, the key to his decision to self-purge, that he could spend a year and a half, and you're in the same position, fighting off, you know, shit-slinging deplorables, only to win another two years sitting next to Marjorie <laughs> Taylor Greene, Madison Cawthorn, Paul Gosar. And the other avatars of Trumpism, you you put your family at risk uh, so that you could spend more time with Lauren Boebert and be in a caucus <laughs> run by Kevin McCarthy. So that's why I want to sort of, you know, tee up this particular mm -hmm. basic question. Anthony Gonzalez is 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 moving on. You are sticking around. So here's here's the question. We need a little musical interlude here to set the mood. <laughs> let me know. Should I stay or should I go? <laughs> should I stay or should I go now? Yeah, every Republican asking himself. That's right. Yeah, you know, you stay. It's uh, she's gonna create some trouble. You leave, you're gonna uh, create some trouble. So, Adam, you're sticking I feel around. Like I you've tapped into my brain all of a sudden uh, and played right, it for so everybody. What's so? What's what's going on there? I mean, you're you're playing that song in a loop in your head. Should I stay or should I go? Yeah, and, I, and it really comes down to the question of, you know, is is this idea of Republican and Democrat is only going to be the two parties forever set in stone, if that's the case. Um, you know, you stay as a Republican, you stay in, you fight for the soul of the party. Um, because a I, 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 quick aside, 
the Democrats are doing nothing to reach out and draw in those that have been disaffected from Republicanism. I mean, yesterday, for goodness sakes, I, you know, I wanted to vote for this debt limit increase, but this ended up being, they ended up like pulling out a billion dollars for aid to Israel. And yeah. I'll tell you, the Progressive Caucus doesn't give a crap about spending. It's an Israel thing. And so anyway, that's that question. Or the other question is, is there really an opportunity for a centrist or something different movement to take hold. Right. That's what I don't know the answer to. But I think if there is, it should be explored because I would love to save the Republican Party. After all, I am probably more Republican than Donald Trump as of the old definition of Republicanism. Now, if it fully changes, sure. definitely not so. Um, I wish I had the answer. But the question is, there are a lot of people that feel unrepresented. That can't go on for long. How do we fix that? So here's the dilemma, which, I, which I'm, I'm sure that you have wrestled with, which is that, okay, so you stay and you fight for the soul of the Republican Party, but that fight has taken place and it's it's done, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, it's this hellscape of, you know, crazified school board meetings, Trump rallies, my pillow guy <laughs> stuff, News, Newsmax, <laughs> Fox News, all of that stuff. So, so, so that's done. So, you know, but if you leave then you leave the party in the hands of this crazified universe. You empower the Lauren Boberts. If you leave, you the, the party becomes dumber, meaner, crazier, more beholden to Trump, and is still a major party. So, I mean, we've gone back and forth. I mean, I've you know had Michael Steele on on this on this podcast, and he said, "Look, this is my party. They invaded my house. I'm not leaving my house because the crazy you know you know you know bugheads have infested it." Um, but, but, but again, uh, you know, do you really want to be sitting around? I mean, you, do you really want this job, Adam? And being in the Kevin McCarthy, we're going to impeach Joe Biden caucus next, you know, in yeah. 2023. Look, it's a, it's a good question. And, uh, you know, uh, I intend to run again. It's a question that constantly goes through your head. Um, because it's not just when you say, if you run again, it's another, I mean, keep in mind, I've already been in this for 11 years. It's like, yeah. It's not another two years. It's actually another three and a half years because I yeah. still have a year and a half of this term. Right. And uh, you know, if you win, what you get a couple of cool new a couple a couple days of a news story saying, you know, Kinsinger proved himself right, blah blah blah, and then the next day that is overcome by the impeach Joe Biden movement. And uh, you know, does the party need to burn to recognize that it's failing? Um, I don't know the answer to that question. What I know is that God has put in me a passion to save this country. I don't really give a crap anymore about actual republicanism. What I care about is conservative politics in America, and we'll see what form that takes. Uh, but the, you know, I, I think the problem is if you ever even talk about things like a third party, what ends up happening is it gets right to the point of election day, and somebody looks and goes, but golly, I hate so-and-so so much that I'm not going to throw my vote away on a third party, so I'm going to vote for the least of two deplorables. And we are plugged into this matrix that says, if you don't like Joe Biden, you've got to like Donald Trump. If you don't like Donald Trump, you like Joe Biden. And there's a whole world outside of the matrix of awesome possibilities that we have been told never existed. Yeah, and I think that that is the problem, and I don't see that ending anytime soon. So let's talk. I, I want to pick on on something you said um, that happened yesterday in 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 Congress, where the progressives stripped out a uh, billion dollars for uh, Israel's Iron Dome. It was <laughs> a rather breathtaking um, moment, and it's really divided 
uh, Democrats. And I want to talk uh, with you about that and, and a couple of other things when we come back. If you're a fan of this podcast or any of our other podcasts here at The Bulwark, I really think you're going to enjoy our newest edition. It's called The Focus Group, and it's hosted by our own Sarah Longwell. Maybe you've heard Sarah talk about these focus groups that she conducts, but now she's actually sharing real audio from the participants. It's a great show, and I know you're going to love it. Again, it's called The Focus Group with Sarah Longwell, and you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you consume podcasts. Okay, we're back with Congressman Adam Kinzinger. Um, you know, Adam, you, you, you said something about the fact that the Democrats are not reaching out. And I, I think this is something that we, we kind of need to do to red flag that mm-hmm. there are some Democrats that have gone to, you know, the centrist Democrats who I, I think have been willing to make common cause with, uh, you know, anti-Trump Republicans. But then you have the progressive caucus, which basically has decided that the future of the Democratic Party is not to make common cause with center-right, center-left folks, but it is to move hard left. And you really saw how far they're willing to push things. I have to say that I was appalled at the uh, at the action yesterday where progressives forced the Democrats to take out, I think it was a billion dollars mm-hmm. for you know, Israel's Iron Dome, which is a completely defensive missile system. So what happened there? And I know that a lot of other Democrats are, are quite upset about it as well. That it's not just it's not just a Republican Democrat divide there. Yeah, I mean think about this. Like we actually benefit from the Iron Dome as well. We're we're talking about deploying it to protect American troops. And here's the problem. So the Progressive Caucus is the exact same thing as the Freedom Club. Okay. Yes. The Freedom Caucus, Freedom Caucus. they are the same thing. When we had the majority, remember, we were about to replace Obamacare and the Freedom Club decided that we wanted to get rid of protections for pre-existing conditions. Brilliant. And uh, so then we had to do that to pass it. And then it was Rand Paul that killed it in the Senate, even though, uh, you know, McCain gets blamed for it because he ended up rejecting the kind of BS skinny version. Anyway, that's a whole story. But that's what's happening now to the Democrats. And yeah, I mean, I was it was breathtaking is the best way to put it, like you said, because yesterday I was planning to vote for this continuing resolution really? and the debt limit increase. Yeah, and there were a handful of us because you cannot – I mean, debt matters, but you want debt to really matter, you start to act like you're going to default on it, and all of a sudden you will have a debt crisis immediately. And I think the high debt makes it even much more imperative to not screw with the debt limit. But that said, uh, we were going to vote for it, and then all of a sudden – the Democrats made it clear that they needed progressive votes and had to pull, you know, I'm not going to go vote for a billion less dollars for Israel. So it became partisan. Of course, you know, the flying monkeys on Twitter say, oh, Kinzinger, we thought you were better. You're no different mm-hmm. than blah, blah, blah. But that's the problem. And, you know, if if we could, what would be amazing, honestly, is if you could take those centrist Democrats and governing Republicans and actually create your own alliance or party or whatever, you could run politics in this country. But instead, the Democrats are being held hostage right now to the Progressive Caucus. I, well, I, to an extent, yeah. I feel for him because we had to deal with the same thing. The the Biden campaign seemed to promise that that's the way he was going to govern. And I, I was kind of wondering yesterday, what if uh, Donald Trump had not tanked uh, Republican chances in, in, in Georgia? 
What if Joe Biden had become president with a Democratic House, but a Republican Senate? Then he would have been forced to govern in a very, very different way. But it does seem as as if he's allowed himself to be pressured by the progressive caucus to move further left, to make these kinds of, of, of compromise, to make these kinds of concessions, which given how you know, the political, you know, politics is on this balanced on this tight razor's edge mm-hmm. is, um, I mean, you step back and you go, okay, you guys understand the math, right? You have like, what, a five vote margin in the house? What is it? Five, three, whatever. Mm-hmm. Five, yeah. yeah. It's like um, five. Yeah. It's 50, 50 Senate. You're not going to be FDR with those right. kinds of numbers, people. Yeah, I think actually for the for the Democrats probably and for Joe Biden, the best thing that could have happened is Republicans holding the Senate because that would give an excuse, a reason. You know, part of the part of the battle is you still have to win independence to take a majority. And so they went, you know, it's what we did as well. And now what the Democrats have done. But then once you're in, who are you responsible to? Well, you're only responsible to those in the party. And of course, the most extreme voices speak. And then you have a massive reaction in the country, like I think will probably happen. And Republicans may take the lesson from that, that Donald Trump is a winning yeah. thing. But yeah, it's that's exactly right. It's it's You get in by independence and you govern by the extremes and you get out then. So one of the lines that, uh, that, that Joe Biden has used that I think is, 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 important is that he says it's up to us to to prove that democracy can still work. I mean, I think the part of the debate between, uh, you know, liberal, small L liberalism, constitutional republicanism and authoritarianism is the question, well, you know, do, do democracies work anymore uh, or are they simply gr- gridlock? Can they deliver for the people? And over the next week, I think we're going to get to an interesting glimpse because if in fact um, the uh, Democrats split and, you know, kill both of his infrastructure bills, the $3.5 trillion uh, reconciliation package, which is not going to pass, but then also decide to kill the bipartisan infrastructure Mm -hmm. bill that got, what, 67 votes in the United States Senate. And then if they also, if Republicans then hold firm and, you know, refuse to raise the debt ceiling, that would seem to be the moment where you go, wow, our system is completely dysfunctional. It does not work. Neither political party is, be, you know, is is able to deliver uh, what they need to do. I mean, this debt ceiling vote, and I know you just mentioned it, but uh, we have this new analysis out today that you know an impasse over the debt ceiling might cost the economy up to six million jobs and wipe out, uh, wipe out as much as fifteen trillion dollars in household wealth, mm-hmm. send the unemployment rate up to nine percent from five percent, and I mean, and and you know. This whole debt ceiling thing is just completely reckless, and yet apparently no Republicans in the Senate are going to vote to support raising the debt ceiling? Yeah, I mean, look, two things. So, A, or one, <laughs> two things, yeah. one, um, you know, yes, on the debt limit itself, you cannot screw with it. And the whole thing is this, is, so we're $28 trillion about in debt. Um, really, debt doesn't matter until it does. So, as long as people have faith that that debt that they buy will be paid, um, you can run up as much debt as you want without a debt crisis in theory, right? The problem is when people start thinking, gee, America may default on its debt, that's particularly when you have a debt crisis because people start needing higher interest rates to buy, you know, to, to finance that debt. 
you get lower credit ratings, and that's when you fall off the debt cliff. That's the danger of it. Now, obviously, we need to reduce the debt, and I'm not saying it doesn't matter, but you want to make it matter today. That's how you do it. The other problem is we have such broken politics that we've begun to use the debt limit as leverage for policy. And, you know, to an extent, the, the Senate Republicans have a point, which is they're demanding that this debt limit get raised before the discussion about the $3.5 trillion. On the other hand, you know, the reason yesterday, for instance, I voted against the debt limit increase and I voted for every debt limit increase was because they were playing games with it on the things like Iron Dome and we still have a week and we know it'll end up coming back. But this is what bothers me so much is that we're going to have this ping pong of debt limit increase. We'll probably vote on it two or three more times, all because it's about trying to get leverage to the very end. That's why the system is broken. And that's why people have to unplug from the matrix, quit, you know, believing the narrative that is fed to them and, you know, and, and think for themselves and come up with new stuff, right? New stuff to, to old problems. You know, it, 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 it is interesting. I have not spent a lot of time, uh, you know, talking about a lot of these things because it, it does seem like it's a kabuki dance that we've seen over and over and over again, that we always have this drama about the debt ceiling. And in the end, they, they figure it out because the alternative is just too great. I guess, the, I mean, I understand the whole point about get, getting more leverage, but, uh, you know, holding the American you know, the, the American economy hostage to get more leverage seems a reckless thing to do. And totally of course, agree. I just don't think that Ted Cruz is, uh, you know, is intellectually honest or an, or an honorable actor in all of this. It's sort of the performative demagoguery that, uh, that he's, that he's using to keep himself, uh, pro prominent with, with no real end game. And I think just people need to be reminded once again, that raising the debt ceiling is not about future spending. It's about stuff you've already spent. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's, it's about, basically paying your own freaking bills. That's it. It's it's saying, hey, I bought a bunch of stuff. Here's the credit card. I'm going to save money by not paying my credit card bill. No, that's you know, that's not how you save money. That's how you destroy your credit and end up skyrocketing your costs. So, okay, I, I, I just saw a note that I had that I was going to bring up way earlier in the podcast. What's <laughs> <laughs> that to think about podcasts? Like, I, I forgot to bring this up, but it was something that I was thinking about yesterday when I was walking the dog. I said, I'm, I'm going to ask Adam Kinzinger about this because I remember very, very distinctly, and I'm sitting exactly where I was sitting when you and I were talking, I believe it was in December. Oh yeah. Was, I don't know whether this was the first time you were on the podcast. I but think it was. It was. Like, yeah. And we're chatting about at that point, you know, Joe Biden had won the election. You know, everybody assumed that things were going to, you know, we were going to go through the normal, the normal the, the normal dance back and forth, but that, you know, it was, you know, it was it, it was a done deal. And you and I were talking about the uh, what would happen on January 6th <laughs> when the House had to vote. And I was sitting here thinking, so Maybe what, like a dozen, two dozen Republicans might vote to not certify the electoral count. And remember what you said? You were so innocent. You were I so was. innocent. I think I, I was. said, I was. oh, Charlie. I think I said like, oh, Charlie, yeah, yeah. I think it'll be a hundred. It was 138. And you're like, what? No, I mean, that was like, that was like a, a that story the other day too. 
Yep. That was that was a that was a gut punch when you said a hundred because that was like, okay, I I and I don't think of myself as naive or innocent, but <laughs> I hadn't realized it was that bad. And as it turned and again, it was it was a gut punch when you you said that and and it made a lot of news that you said that. But then I it turned out seen, go ahead, yeah, go ahead. No, and but then it was much worse even than your worst case scenario. Oh yeah, because I've yeah. seen this play a hundred times where it's like at you know, we have to sign this this legal brief on Texas. Okay, maybe 10 people sign it. Well, now these groups are saying, oh, Adam didn't sign it. Oh, you know, Kevin, Mc I mean, keep in mind that whole legal brief thing too. Kevin didn't sign it. And then the next okay. day signed it because yeah. of the pressure and said he was just inadvertently left off. And I know for a fact that's a bunch of crap, but that's how this works, peer pressure. It worked in this case. Well, th this is an indication of how fast and far things have moved. Yep. And th this is something that for people who say, well, you should have known, you know, four or five years or 10 years ago that it was going to go this way. What's happened since December is still, mm -hmm. objectively speaking, shocking. Yeah. And I don't think anybody could. I think you can look back at how things have gone and said you can see hints of it for sure with perfect hindsight vision. Sure. But I think we all never believed that, you know, the party that claims to be the party for the rule of law could actually be the party advocating for the collapse of the rule of law. And that's well, what's let's happening. Go, yeah. Well, and let's go back to, you know, the, the original video that we played at the beginning of all of this, that the only way to break this fever, the only way to turn this around is for people in positions of who are credible voices in the party, uh, in positions of, of some responsibility and authority for them to, to speak truth to not to power, but to their own base. And, you know, who knows what will happen, but there's, there's, there's no way out of this unless people speak up, um, you know, stop, you know, you know, sidling up to you in the, in the cloakroom and saying, you know, Adam, keep it up. I really right. agree with you, but I can't say anything at some point, you know, they're going to have to put on their big boy pants and big girl pants, and they're going to have to begin pushing back against all of this. And you kind of wonder whether at, at that point, if enough See, that's the problem. You, you have to have a critical mass, right? You that's can't right. just be two people. It's got to be a critical mass. And at that point, you, you, you know, maybe even your, you know, Fox News addicts look around saying, hey, you know, m maybe this isn't true. Maybe, maybe you know, we shouldn't embrace these policies. And I remember, you know, the talk of the whole Flight 93 election, but yeah. let's use that example yeah. of if it's me and Liz Cheney that rush the cockpit, the terrorists are going to win, right? Yeah, right. You have to all rise up. And as of now, uh, it is, it, it's not up to me and Liz and the other eight. It is up to the people that haven't spoken up yet. And it's up to us to demand better leaders because after all, we are the United States of America. We're the greatest country in the world, unplug from the matrix of bad choices and start to think again that we deserve far better. Well, and, and that's the bottom line. You think the Republican party is bad now? Imagine a Republican party without Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger, and people like Anthony Gonzalez, because- that is even more dystopian as a picture. Adam Kinziger, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast and for all that you have been doing. I Anytime. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again.